Welcome to the Trap One podcast, where this time we are abuzz with excitement. A cottage is under siege, but we hope we have got the right stuff, because this episode we have been delving back into the distant, distant past of 2009, when um, when Paul Mars and the people at BBC Audio unleashed the fourth Doctor upon us once again for the beginning of the Nest Cottage Chronicles. I'm Pete, and here we have Mark... Hello. And Simon. Hello. That was weird. Normally, we just say our own names. I don't know why I was doing it that way. Well, thank you, You've reminded me who I am. That's That's good. good. Okay, I'm glad you both know. (laughs) The reason we've been prompted to go back to this, and we're glad we have, is because of this new uh, release that's coming out, isn't it? uh, Mark, you've been looking at uh, what's included in the vinyl set in in the preview stuff. Yeah, this is this is an absolutely beautiful set from Demon Music Group, who have been uh, releasing Doctor Who stories on vinyl. Uh, so they've been doing a lot of the missing stories, but they've done the occasional completed story as well, like uh, the Horror of Fang Rock that, that we talked about with Jason Pete. Mm. So this set has got the the entire the first series um, that, that Paul Mars wrote for Tom Baker, which is Hornet's Nest. Over ten discs, a fantastic uh, presentation box. It's got a hand-signed, frameable print of Tom Baker. Uh, there's a booklet, which uh, is, is uh, the Doctor's notebook um, on his uh, making notes about his battle with the Hornets across the centuries and what he's learned about them. Looks like there's loads of uh, fantastic sketches and cuttings and things in there. And each of the sleeves for the vinyls as well has got, got some beautiful artwork on it of, of things relevant to the story. So yeah, it looks amazing. Is it the first time they've? I'm trying to think. Is it the first time they've done one that isn't a TV story soundtrack in this format, or do they do the big? No, yeah, because Big Finish do their own, don't they? So yeah, this is this is. Yeah, a, the, well, they did the Ghosts of End Space and uh, the the Paradise of Death. That was the cool. the the other one that um, that they've done that wasn't a TV story. I was like, were they? I'm sure I can remember John Pertwee swanning around <laughs> in Italy. I must be making inventing that. <laughs> so is it fair to say these are? Prohibitively expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Really? It's £160 for the set. I say it is 10 discs, so you you would expect to to pay quite a bit, but that that is a lot. Um, But I would say we're going to talk about the stories. If if you haven't heard them, you should check them out because they are available on CD. And I think you were saying, Pete, you can get all three series for one Audible credit as that's, well? Yeah, that's right. So, they, yeah, because after they did, they did the three individual, three, which for anyone who's not familiar, it, it, this was this um, Hornet's Nest is the first, I think they say story of made up of five episodes, but really each one of those is like a CD story in its own right but they are it is five episodes of one story really and this is the first of three then there was the two more series and so you can buy all three series in one box set the next nest cottage chronicles for just one audible credit uh, which is uh, which is a whole uh, mega pack of uh, of stuff because uh, it goes off in all sorts of different directions in in the in the second and third volumes yeah uh, and um it, it the cds are still knocking around of course I, I i got the original cds when they came out i think they came out in um, in batches, didn't they? It was like I think they released two, then one, then the other two, something like that, over the course of a few weeks at the end of uh, 2009, uh, if, if I remember rightly. Who was it's it? Difficult to remember now. <laughs> Such a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, it seems like yesterday. But I just remember it being really, really exciting because Tom was coming back. Yeah, and. 
after all the stories we'd heard from Tom Baker of Big Finish trying to court him and him saying, oh, the scripts fell off my lap and fell into the bin <laughs> and things like that. And all these times that they'd tried and failed to get his excitement. And then suddenly the BBC got him unexpectedly on the back of some of the target book readings where he then said, well, I've really enjoyed this. How about we do something new? Oh, and then, yeah, I think he trusted the team that he was working with. I, he, he always raved about Kate Thomas, the producer and director of, of the stories. And I think he felt he was in safe hands with them. And he was just ready. Yeah, so this actually, that's what I see. So this grew out of those Target audiobook readings that he he, he was doing. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten about those. The, the, you know, well, not forgotten about them. I just It feels like they've always been there. I've forgotten they, that they actually had to be made at some point because they've been around for so long. Because yeah, he'd, he'd had. I was I, do, I was doing a list of like we talk about the wilderness years, but then we had the, we had the Tom Baker light years where there was very little Tom Baker output for, for your Doctor Who collections, wasn't there? So he left in eighty one. We get a clip of in the Five Doctors in eighty three. Only a clip. Then it's nearly ten years till we get the Tom Baker years and Dimensions in Time coming out with him just and Sharda and oh of course yeah and yeah but yeah. mm-hmm. oh, oh the Sharda VHS I forgot the Sharda yes. VHS yes. yeah 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 I was like you're jumping yeah, ahead there in the Tom Baker years <laughs> yeah. and then you then a couple of years later he's back for Dimensions in Time yeah and uh, Destiny of the Doctors computer game somebody i found yeah. a mention of that somewhere which another thing i'd forgotten about that deserves an episode of this at some mm-hmm. point <laughs> but um then he'd done those two audio books of his own uh which i remember really enjoying the, the who on earth is tom baker his first biography and then he did the boy who kicked pigs it was very twisted oh, roll yeah it was like roll yes. doll but not so cute and cuddly uh it was <laughs> and uh, he, he did audiobooks of both of those which i think are really not quite him doing a more unhinged, more Tom Bakerish version of the Doctor, which maybe is a, a bit more like the version of character that we're that we're going to meet here. And then he was back for Doctor Who nights. Yeah, when oh, was yeah, nineteen ninety nine, wasn't it? BBC Two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, he was never completely off the radar, but he was um, he was he was in the shadows, wasn't he? Yeah, because there were all the rumours for for a while that he was coming back to do the next batch of radio stories. So there were rumours that he was going to do a series after um, John Pertwee um, with. Eric Saywood, bizarrely, writing wow. the adventures. That never <laughs> happened. <laughs> Which is just a bizarre thing to imagine now. <laughs> and then he was coming back to do a sort of audio book um, thing after they did they did a Paul McGann one and then they did a Colin Baker one, sort of around 1998, 1999. Just like reading some new stories. Do, yeah, they were, yeah. were new stories coming, including Gareth Roberts um, writing The Return of the Giant Spiders or something, yeah. which was subsequently published in one of the short trip books. Oh. But then that fell through again because it was Tom, and everything with Tom <laughs> always sort of mysteriously just didn't happen. So I don't think anyone believed he would actually do do these. So it seemed like such a huge piece of news at the time. Yeah. Yeah, ten years. Yeah. Big Finish had been running for ten years, and he'd just been saying no to them for ten years. Mm-hmm. It, it is sort of hard to remember, as you say, what a big deal it it was now that he, he was properly coming back to the role of the Doctor, because 
he's done so much big finish in the last few years. You, you take him for granted a little bit. Um, but uh, we, we've been reading, and I'll put a link in the show notes to this, the retrospective, it was a sort of a 10-year retrospective on Paul Maher's blog about this series, um, which is really nice and, and ties into what you were saying there about how you know, basically up until the day of the recording, he felt like it wasn't going to happen, that he would change his mind, yeah. that you know something would uh, something would come along. Um, and it, it reminded me um, a few years ago, I saw Mark Gatiss. It was sort of like uh, um, in Darlington, Mark Gatiss's old school, and it was a, an evening with with Mark Gatiss, and he was interviewed on stage, and and he talked about um, interviewing Tom Baker, I think, kind of earlier in his career. And um, it was when Tom Baker lived in France, so he said uh, he spoke to him on the phone. And Tom had said, let's meet somewhere cool and neutral, like pret a uh, So he turned up. <laughs> he's waiting Excellent in the... Big Finish can tire you whenever he's too busy. <laughs> I was waiting in this pret, and then he never turned up. Oh, no. So he phoned his agent, and um, he'd, he'd just sort of come over on the Eurostar, changed his mind, jumped back on, and um, <laughs> come back on again. Um, so I think probably those sort of stories, like you say, were around that, you know, he was difficult to pin down and, uh, you know, was reluctant to come back. So so when it actually came off this time, it was uh, it was huge news. I remember getting that, the first story, and uh, the, the uh, remind myself, the stuff of nightmares. And, uh, yeah, listened to it a few times because it was great to have Tom Baker back uh, but also the, the Paul Maher's writing and dialogue is so rich and uh, poetic, isn't it? And, and Tom really <laughs> seems to relish yeah. every word. It's a fruity old cake, isn't it? There's no yeah. no, no <laughs> fruit has been held back. And there's there's, a, there's, there's lovely uh, old interviews with with, with, the, with like Paul Maher's from the time saying that sort of thing. You know, I'm I'm going to go a hundred percent on on this two hundred percent on on uh, on spicing it all up because you can just hear that you can hear these some of these phrases that come out of Tom's uh, to, Tom's voice are just so perfect for him. I and I think I don't think this was ever considered for another doctor was it i think this was specifically written we've got tom let's write him something because uh, it's so perfect although there was i was thinking about cottages in doctor who uh and there was that there was a, a pertwee comic strip uh where he was he had his own cottage out in the woods uh, i'll share a, a picture of it in the um uh, in the show notes, for you, or we can link to it. Uh, but it, when the Doctor was first exiled, uh, he was there, and I think people have revisited that a few times in comics and short stories. Um, uh, so th- there's this this notion of the Doctor. I think that one was in Wales. Actually, I say I think according to TARDIS Wiki, which I've just called up the page for this cottage, it was for, it was seen in the celluloid Midas, uh, and uh, and in that uh, that was where the, this first idea of the Doctor sort of semi-retiring appeared. I don't know if Paul Mars even knew about that. That could be a coincidence, but it shows that it's a nice fit, particularly to the seventies Doctors. It's just something that suits Tom and, mm. and John maybe. It's interesting it's something that various writers have, have, have come to, isn't it? Because the New Adventures had the Seventh Doctor owning a house in Kent that was a bit of a sort oh, yeah. of pied de terre for, for various adventures. And then in Big Finish, there's a house on Baker Street that that uh, various incarnations have uh, have lived out or stayed out. Just before we started recording, we were talking about the antimatter. Uh, from the uh, from the big Finnish series, and I think that's where the Doctor and Romana based themselves. I think Jago and Lightfoot had a season living there when they were on the run, and then in the recent Stranded, 
Eighth Doctor run, that was uh, that's where the Doctor and his companions live as well. So mm. it's interesting that yeah, having a house on Earth is is something that various spin-off media keep keep coming back to, isn't it? I suppose it's a challenge, isn't it? Because it's literally the opposite of what the standard format is. It's like, can we do? Can will this work? If for a change, we just do the exact opposite. In fact, in this one, and we'll come, we'll talk through the stories, the episodes in a bit. But there's an interesting point at which the Doctor jumps in the TARDIS, and that actually took me by surprise because I had forgotten. Well, I hadn't forgotten because obviously he travels in time. He's obviously going to use the TARDIS. But but there's just a moment where you go, oh yeah, he has still got the TARDIS, just uh, because he's he's so immediately at home in his uh, rather rather mad cottage. Yeah, and that's because in the first story we don't see the TARDIS or hear about the TARDIS at all. Yeah. It's all set in the cottage yeah. with him telling the story to Mike and meeting Percy Noggins. So, brilliant name, isn't it? <laughs> Percy Noggins. <laughs> I, but, yeah, so we don't have any TARDIS action till till the second story. Yeah, of course, yeah. And we don't... And, and I don't know, how, what are we doing in terms of spoiler warnings on this podcast? We're going to assume <laughs> we, we won't give away any life or death things in case people haven't listened yet, yeah? But we'll, we'll obviously we'll, talk, we'll tell you where each story is set. That's not going to be a... It's been out for 13 years. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that was a brilliant time. I remember on Twitch, God, it must have been early days of Twitter, when she, when Sherlock first started and someone tweeted, I think, at Mark Gattis. Mark Gattis made a joke about the episode of Sherlock that was coming up that night that revealed someone died in it. And someone replied with, like, spoilers. And he was like, it was written in 1864. What do you mean? Spoilers. <laughs> Not 1864, but Yeah. <laughs> So we, so it's so we, and I, the stuff of nightmares. I think is one of my all-time favourite Doctor Who titles because it's such a good pun on what's going on. And and as that moment is when the penny drops, that that's what's happening. It's just a, just a moment of genius. It's set. It's set one year in the future. It's, I noticed it's set because I always got confused about when this came out uh, b- because it's set in 2010, but it came out in just before Christmas 2019. Uh, and uh, 2009, Pete. So I just said, oh, God, I just said, yes, thank you. Yeah. Well, it's all the same. As long as yeah. you all know, the 1980s was 20 years ago and the 1990s was 30 years ago. That's all that matters. Everything else is just uh, confusion in the timeline. <laughs> and it starts, doesn't it, with its own little bit of theme music, um, not the Doctor Who theme. And I thought, okay, that's it, that's it, we've had the theme now. But then we get this intro sequence with, uh, with introducing us to Mike and, and bringing him back. To, to life, I think I think Richard Franklin had done one big finish reading uh, of of, or, uh, of a uh, companion chronicles, but um, but this is Mike actually being dramatised for the first time since Planet of the Spiders, and that's a, a big deal, isn't it? I hadn't realised that. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it, it it plays on the anticipation of the Fourth Doctor coming back as well, because it starts from the point of view of of Mike and has been summoned to the house, uh, and that that. Um, they they keep coming back to it, don't they? In the sort of uh, uh, previously on Hornet's Nest bits on the subsequent CDs, but the the advert that's in the is it Country Life magazine or something like that? Mm. Retired Army Captain Wanted. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the very specific experiences from the Third Doctor era. Yeah, uh, yeah. giant maggots and yeah. <laughs> yeah. a positive boon. Yeah, uh, so then it builds up and builds up until uh, the. The doctor does appear, and then the theme tune crashes in. So it's uh, it's a lovely little bit of um, building up your anticipation even more for his return. And, and I think it's fun about the TARDIS not being there as well. Mm. It, it does throw you off with the doctor because you're not quite sure what he's up to at first. 
the TARDIS isn't there. He's living in a house. You know, he's, is he to be trusted? Uh, and all those sort of themes just play all the way through the story, don't they? Yeah, and, and um, by the way, I need to correct myself before we get tweeted out. I know Mike Yates was in, appeared in The Five Doctors, but that was a hallucination, not the actual Mike, and not me forgetting that he was in The Five Doctors. <laughs> but um, yeah, so Mike becomes the, the audience identification figure. And, you, and so you sort of think that he's going to be the narrator of the whole thing. But actually, he's, more, he's the narratee, isn't he? The, doc, he's, the doctor then starts telling him the story, and then it's sort of that sort of flashback to the doctor's tale. It's, really, it's much more uh, book-like than, than anything Big, Big Finish were doing. Because you know, obviously the, the Big Finish thing is it's like Doctor Who TV, but TV episodes, but done as, as audio. And they, they weren't, it's not just, I'm not saying they're just doing TV without the pictures. They're, they're fleshing it out and doing all sorts of clever audio things too. But just structurally, it feels like a, a, a Doctor Who, usually feels like a, a Doctor Who episode being done as a radio drama. But this, yeah, yeah. It, it, play, it does audio book things and then it does radio drama things and it just jumps between the two and it, uh, in unexpected ways. Yeah, it's, it was interesting. I, I was... Um looking back at some of the reactions to it at the time, and there was a lot of almost disappointment that it wasn't like Big Finish. It's not proper, Doctor. Yeah. Because everyone was expecting a proper <laughs> audio drama. And, yeah, I think BBC Audio were very clever in doing something a bit different. And, of course, if you've got Tom Baker, who has the most wonderful voice... <laughs> then you you want to hear him narrating stories because he's brilliant at that. He judges those those bits absolutely perfectly. He knows all the beats. He knows how to tell a story on audio. He's he works in he's worked in audio so much of yeah. that of course that's going to work. And I really like uh, I really liked that being different to Big Finish. But I think there was a lot of disappointment from fans at the time because again, as always it wasn't what they were expecting, so it was bad, and they're not judging it on what it was. I will keep banging on about this until everyone know, understands this theory. <laughs> but you, you require less description in the dialogue by doing it that way as well, which is you know, arguably a strength over, over um, some big finishes. Yeah, because um, the Doctor can just say, and then, Mike, this, this giant thing came towards me. It was a badger, rather than yeah. having to have someone who's in the room going, look, Doctor, it's a badger. It's, um, it's coming towards us. <laughs> yeah. Or, as he says, because I noted this down, as, uh, just a few pieces of dialogue which I really loved was a snuffling ursine brute <laughs> when, the, uh, when the badger attacks them. There's, there's loads of these lovely little bits, like the um, when they, they're talking about... Uh, Percy Noggins is the, uh, uh, what's it called when you stuff animals? Taxidermist. <laughs> the taxidermist. He's the, he's the, he's the taxidermist. And uh, we the, the doctor says, like, brains scooped out like cake mix. <laughs> yeah. Really beautiful. Uh, <laughs> uh, my my favourite one is when, when the doctor says, and of course, I was examining it and I cut Cut into its brain with my tiny brain scissors. Yeah. <laughs> he just, of course, he carries just, brain scissors. Of course, he's got brain scissors. <laughs> my one, we've all done the same thing. We didn't challenge each other to do this, but I've written down the corridor rang with the chattering noise of simian panic. I can't do a top voice at all, but I love that. <laughs> yeah, I think Paul Mars, 
knows what's going to appeal to Tom Baker. And they're like a match made in heaven, the two of them. So, because Paul Miles has a very macabre imagination and it comes out in a lot of his writing. So, I mean, his, a lot of his early novels are very um, magical realism. And there's, um, there's a man who is turning into a tiger and all sorts in his third book, for instance, and really bizarre things happening in ordinary places. And of course, yeah. taxidermy, that's, I mean, it's sinister to begin with. So, but making the, the stuffed animals come to life and attack people, that it's an image we can all see. Yeah. And, I think, and speaking of, uh, of attracting Tom Baker back, the, there's always the stories about when Tom Baker was on the TV show of him not wanting a companion. So this is quite deliberately set between the invasion of time and the Rebus operation, isn't it? So he's, although he's, he's got Mike there, the adventures that he's relaying for the first four discs, he is without a companion. Uh, so even if that was, that, that was part of the, the lure as well. Yeah, so he could do lots of talking to himself, which <laughs> yeah. is always a joy as well. Yeah. I like the start of the face of evil and things like that when he hasn't got anyone else. But of course, you've got the narration, so that mm. sort of covers it nicely. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think in the... I'm, I'm, I haven't listened on to the, to the other two stories in the seasons of the trilogy. Uh, but I think they... Do they become a bit more naturalistic or a bit less narrated and more immersive i can't remember i think the last series is is fully dramatized or whatever the yeah, word is yeah. it's more narration yeah i think the, uh, the last one yeah i think the first one that they did that was fully dramatized was the Tsar wars which is yeah. a brilliant pun <laughs> <laughs> but, and that felt again something completely different to what they'd done before so they're always pushing what they could do Mm. sort of throughout this series yeah and this, this one just before we move on from stuff and nightmares i've got to talk about the did either of you two ever visit the jamaica in taxidermy museum down in um no. down on the road to, oh it was on the road to cornwall uh it was in I think it was in Cornwall. Yeah, I think you'd crossed De- you'd left Devon and you're in Cornwall. By- yes, of course you are by the time you get to the Jamaica Inn. It had two of the most, uh, so it's a big, big, you know, ancient, hundreds of years old pub at the side of the road, which has been extended and everything now. A uh, place where you could just get chicken in a basket to eat uh, while slowly towing a caravan to, uh, to Penzance. I'm speaking from experience, obviously. And, uh, and it had, these two main components were a, a recreation of the story of the book Jamaica Inn in just like about six waxwork exhibits bits when you just press a button <laughs> you press a button in front of the bedraggled one of a woman running and it, and it says oh i must run away he's trying to kill me and it's like that was the first 10 chapters and then you go your way around but then under it, it had this um victorian curio museum which was almost entirely stuffed animals in amusing charming settings like there's all these stuffed squirrels playing cricket in front of a model church and then there's lots of there's mice having a tea party and uh i don't know i just this this every time I, I I hear this story, it takes me back there. Sadly, they uh, they sold it all off at some point around the turn of the century, to uh, but it to, to pay for the refurbishment of the car park or something like that, uh, and they all got they all got whisked away. But um, yeah, that's where this takes me. I don't think they had a dodo, and I did like the. I also like the mention in this of I used to travel with a dodo. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's just little nods. I'm never quite sure whether Tom gets them or not, which is the real joy of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I know uh, Paul Mars said in some of the interviews at the time that something that really excited him was handing the script, sending the scripts to Tom and them coming back with lots of annotations and suggestions and comments and him enjoying that. And, and that's so they both, they weren't, um, nobody was holding each other back. They're just really going for it, aren't they? <laughs> mm-hmm. and do we, the suggestions in, in an interview as well that originally it, we were going to have the Brigadier instead of Mike Yates, isn't there? That, um, that uh, Tom Baker was looking forward to working with Nicholas Courtney on these, but then he was, he was unwell and, and couldn't record. But I, I feel like having Mike Yates in there, although it's, it's slightly odd at first because he never met the fourth Doctor on screen, the way that the story pans out with the, the suspicion and possession and, and different things like that, it, it works so well with his character because of his history and his own sort of self doubt and, and and all that kind of stuff. It's I think that was um, that was probably a, a brilliant inspired decision to have Richard Franklin uh, in instead. You know, if if they couldn't have Nicholas Courtney, yeah, I don't think we'd have got that same kind of suspicion from the Brigadier because the Brigadier is so resolute and mm-hmm. and the Doctor's best friend or or whatever. And so yeah, but it it was a a relationship that no one expected but worked really well and i think richard franklin was really brilliant in all of these yeah and 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 mike has got a lot of we just don't know him as well as we know the brigadier and so we can't Mm. predict him as well as we can predict the brigadier although we we know and we'll we'll come to what happens at the end but yeah he's 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 got more space to work with as a as a a character that we that we can find out about haven't we yeah yeah we've no idea what happened to him after Planet of the Spiders, um, to you know, to, to to where he ends up in this story, so it's uh, yeah, he's a, he's a bit of a uh, blank canvas in the intervening decades. Mm. Yeah, I like those little hints that he's he's seen this version of the Doctor somewhere, and um, and so he knows he's not surprised when it's a different Doctor to, to his Doctor, and it's just that that little bit of piecing together tiny bits of continuity and history that don't matter very much but they just add a little bit to mike's story really yeah the doctor's very unwilling to reminisce isn't he so and you sort of think well that's because it's the third doctor yes. <laughs> he, doesn't to, uh, he doesn't want to reminisce about it but what 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 struck me as well i haven't listened to all the fourth doctor big finish stuff but what i've listened to he's very cuddly and avuncular in most of them, whereas in this story, he still has some of that sort of TV, uh, slight bad-temperedness sometimes and uh, and things like that, which which you don't, I feel like you don't, I haven't really heard on any of the big Finnish stories that he's done. He's he's sort of the opposite of, um, of Lala Ward in the big Finnish ones. She uh, seems to have lost a lot of the playfulness and he's quite sort of stern in uh, in her stories, uh, whereas the fourth Doctor in the Big Finish has, has become much much cuddlier. Yeah, there's a, he's a bit more alien in these stories, isn't he? And a bit more unknowable, and a, and I like that. That's good. That's sort of perfect for for Tom. Yeah, I mean, sort of evoking his his early days, which Big Finish don't do so often. I think. Yeah. 
And it's in the second story, The Dead Shoes, that we really go into him meeting Mrs. Wibsey, who we need to talk about, don't we? Because oh, <laughs> the way that she she is just so obviously bad tempered and crotchety and constantly putting him in his place and he loves it. I blow <laughs> your head. <laughs> and uh She's, she's. I, w- I wonder if she's the kind of companion he would have wanted. A, when, he, when he when he spoke once about wanting Miriam Margulies, a very young Miriam Margulies in the seventies, to be his companion. But I wonder if he would have wanted her to be crotchety and unmanageable in the same way. Um, that would have been quite a uh, quite a pairing. Because yeah, so the dead shoes takes us back to Cromer, nineteen thirty two. That could have been a joke for the brigadier, couldn't it? Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, or maybe not. But. Um, and yes, it is, this is sort of genesis of the Wibsy because she's she's been a, she's around in the house in the first one, but it, this is where we go back and we meet her in her actual natural habitat uh, as the curate curatress. I should it be curatrix? I'm sure it's no, maybe it shouldn't. I'm sure he's checked. If he says curatress, then it's curatress uh, of a, of the Palace of Curios, which I did, I haven't dared to Google it because if it's not real, I'll be heartbroken, and so I'll I'll just accept that it's maybe real in in Paul Mars's imagination. Uh, and mine <laughs> I think this was my favourite one of all five I just really love this this one goes all over the place you've got sort of um, a version of the red shoes but you've also got the doctor being miniaturised and put into a doll's house and you've got storms and you've got dancing and you've got the Hammond organ on the end of the pier and and a, vic- a fruity vicar, the whole, <laughs> really, the whole lot, everything is going on in this one. And I just loved it to pieces. It's great, isn't it? And Ernestina Stott is another one of those perfect <laughs> names for, for Tom Baker Stroke Paul Mars. That's just what everyone is called in the world. I think everyone they meet has got names like that. <laughs> what, what was the name of the woman, who, um, Begonia Pope? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're just, you could tell they probably live next door to each other. <laughs> It only occurred to me then when you were talking about Mrs. Wibsey being the curatress that obviously we Tom Baker becomes the curator. Of course. So head canon, <laughs> this is his inspiration. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Takes it from his old friend, Mrs. Wibsey. Wibsey. I think Mrs. Wibsey works in the undergallery as well. We just didn't see her. That would work, wouldn't it? <laughs> or maybe she's a future doctor. Maybe she's the 97th doctor. <laughs> when... Tom was, was uh, sort of thinking about this. He'd said, well, what if it's a story if I never regenerated and I've just become old and I'm doing these stories? And so you could sort of read it that way as well, although there's the, the reference to where it's actually set within the TV continuity. But there's a real feeling of it being out on its own and something completely different. And you can imagine it as old Tom sat there telling a story to, to mm. Richard Franklin, yeah. which is brilliant. Yeah, that that fits. That, yeah, that would really fit. And he gets to, and my favourite line in this one is "Give me your tights," which I suspect he's wanted to shout it for perfectly innocent and sensible reasons for a long time. And because we learn in this one that, well, in, when he meets Mrs. Wibsey on this one, she's been possessed by the hornets. So then we're never quite sure about her right up to the end of the story about how much she might still be under the influence. And it occurred to me listening to it again this time that we never get any narration from her, which also feeds into that. We, we never get her point of view. So it also, of the three main characters that, that span the whole set, 
that she could be in league with them or or maybe even that she didn't make it because uh, the the fifth part is told from another sort of point of view in the future, isn't it? Um, the Doctor having relayed the first four stories to Mike. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, a nice bit of, sort of storytelling, I think, uh, by keeping you uh, unsure of Mrs. Wibsey. Yeah, and the way that it um, flashes back and then back and then back uh, is very. Um, I'm not going to say the word. The the, the t the tw <laughs> rhyming <laughs> word. Timey rhymey. Oh God, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's really clever, cleverly structured that the Doctor is travelling backwards in time while the Hornets are coming forward in time, and you don't quite know how the stories are. Are going to meet, and it turns out that the doctor has set it all in motion, mm. but you don't get those the um the clues to that till much later on. A foxtrot through time, they call it. In this yes, one. Mm. <laughs> but you've got all that, but in the meantime, you've got all those really evocative images that Tom Baker brings to life, like the hornets that you can see in, in the pupils of the people who are possessed by by the hornets and you could just see the tiny movement in their pupils and, and things like that and see them animating the bodies and and just and then obviously the macabre image of the the shoes with the desiccated feet in them it's just wow and then then the, the sort of description of the two feet just being left behind when <laughs> Ernestina Scott puts on the shoes and things like that and it's yeah, and so so it's her dancing, isn't it? That they enable her to dance better than anyone has ever danced. That in do, and but in doing so, that builds the power of the uh, of the hornets. Um, and uh, yeah, so so I set I set a challenge before we did this recording because uh, this one is inspired by a musical, and it made me think. Well, a musical based on a fairy tale, but the the big famous musical came out in the forties. Uh, and and Doctor Who's always you know, borrowing from this, that, and everything. But I can't think of any other examples of Doctor Who being directly borrowed from a, from the story of a musical in this way. Uh, plenty of Hammer horror films and plenty of thrillers. But um, do you two guys have any suggestions of other mu- famous musicals that not not in terms of singing necessarily, but in terms of the story that would work for a Doctor Who adaptation? Well, I have um, have two. Because I've thought it too. Firstly, um, Doctor Who, The Ultimate Adventure, which is almost nearly Doctor Who and does have songs. That's true. So maybe that would count. But, but so there no, should be a Doctor Who adaptation of Doctor Who, The Ultimate Adventure. Yeah, I think that would be, yeah, because they could make it more Doctor Who y, I think. The Doctor could be staging a production of Doctor Who, The Ultimate Adventure. <laughs> With Tom Baker directing Colin Baker. Yeah. I think that would work. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the most obvious one um, would be The Phantom of the Opera. Uh, and of course, and here's me saying it's not been done before. And, and that, but yeah, that, that's been touched on, hasn't it? Yes. But, I mean, obviously, the musical came after the Doctor Who stories that were directly influenced by The Phantom of the Opera. But you could, oh yeah. you could, you could adapt some of the Doctor Who stories into the, yeah, yeah. yeah, that would, yeah, in that kind of style. I think Robert Holmes would approve. <laughs> Talons of Wang Chiang, the musical. Everyone would love it. <laughs> Nothing can... Yes, that's going to have no controversy <laughs> whatsoever, is it? <laughs> 
but yeah, that's the point. So hey, maybe uh, maybe it was Caves of Androzani that inspired. No, that's the wrong year, isn't it? It was before then. I can't I can't say Andrew Lloyd Webber was inspired by Caves of Androzani, but um, maybe by Dan <laughs> Close run thing. Close run thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, evidence is inconclusive. <laughs> All right, you, you Mark. Did anything spring to mind from your vast knowledge of musicals? I know you're such an expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah, I don't know much about musicals, but it just when you were talking there, is My Fair Lady a musical? Because that's sort oh. of the inspiration for Leela a little bit, was it? The, oh, um, yeah. The the sort of mention um, in the towns of Wen Chang again. <laughs> It's the most musical inspired. Yeah, it's been, it's been staring us in the face this whole time. We never noticed. <laughs> Just a musical without songs. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm all, I only really know uh, Mamma Mia because uh, my wife dragged me to to see both of those. Um, and I suppose they're probably not considered musicals by purists because they're the, uh, the jukebox musicals, aren't they? But what's it about? It's about someone who's searching for her real family roots. It's about a, a quest to try and find out what really happened when you, when, when you were created. I'm thinking Timeless Child here. Is, is the Timeless Child yeah. arc actually just Mamma Mia on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an intergalactic scale? Cross with the three doctors. So you've got three, <laughs> yeah. three potential fathers coming back after a long time, you know? <laughs> Knowing me, knowing who. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, and it's got even though there's only two films, it's got it's got pretty ropey continuity, like Doctor Who as well, because the uh, (laughs) yeah the flashbacks in the first one to the younger versions don't look anything like the uh, the younger versions who appear in the completely defunct second film, which just tells the story again. It's just, they just go through go, go through the motions again. But, yeah. but, but this time it's Abba Morgold instead of Abba Gold. <laughs> yeah. That's it. So, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's yeah, my, my yeah. limited knowledge. Uh, it was only that one. But, yes, Simon's made some great uh, links. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've seen them too too often. No <laughs> showing. <laughs> Did you come up with one piece? Well, yeah. So my contri- my contribution was going to be, um, or is going to be, um, I'm thinking a doctor, maybe the third doctor, who's got that showman style. He's good at entertaining people. I'm thinking maybe not actual 1930s Berlin because things get complicated. Then you pretty much know there's going to be a sad ending. But if we have like a outer space place, a bit like 1930s Berlin, and it's basically cabaret, but with John Pertwee in the Liza Minnelli role. And uh, I haven't got much further than that, but there's going to be, it, it's, it's decadence. It's, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and, but this time the Nazis lose, because I think that's a, a big improvement. That's the one major downside of, of the movie Cabaret. Uh, it has a really rubbish ending in, due to history. But that's uh, that's not the movie's fault. But uh, yeah, that that would be my attempt, I think. And Cabaret is based on a book that was dedicated, written by Christopher Isherwood, that was dedicated to Beatrix Lehman and her brother. That's you, you've I've, I've bored you with that fact before, or did you already know it? Simon's nodding. No, 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 no I just knew that. You fact. Are, of course, you do. Librarian Simon, of course, you do that. Sorry. Yeah. I, I know about five Doctor Who facts, and I just keep. I know about five facts like that that I just trot out every time I'm on a, every time I'm on a podcast, and I'm, I'm repeating myself. I need to get some new ones. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Oh, Educational remit. <laughs> so should we go on and look at episode three, the Circus of Doom, which yes. the, 
And it, it, I love the, um, the Tom line. I'm going to jump straight in before. The, the Tom line where you get to say, this could turn from a circus of delights into a circus of doom, which is just brilliant. <laughs> and we've jumped back a bit further. We've jumped back 100 years to Blandford. Is that down south? Is that your neck of the woods, Simon? It's um, an actual Dorset town. Yeah. So not far from where I was brought up. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was a real place. I thought it was just named Blandford because the because the whole story is about how it's such a dull place and everybody's very uh, sort of oh no you don't you don't hold with anything like that and then the circus comes and turns everything upside down and people are appalled but fascinated by it. Uh, so I, mean, I imagine that's why he chose the name, but I didn't realize it was a it was a real place. I didn't think Surbiton was real. I was amazed when I, saw, I just thought it was made up for the good life, and uh, and then I just saw it on a road sign one day. As an adult, and I was just because no one had ever met it, had never come up in conversation. But yeah, it's the same sort of thing. It just Surbiton yeah. sounds too perfect to have been made up for a sitcom. Yeah, <laughs> but this features um, one of my favorite pieces of casting in the whole thing, which is um, the mighty, huge Stephen Fawn, which is just wonderful. <laughs> it's on audio, on audio, there are no limitations, exactly. And his voice is incredible in that scene where he's in the doctor's mind towards the climax. Uh, they're having a, a good old inter- interior monologue battle, which again is something that's it's very Hornet's Nesty, it's very Paul Marzi, and, and, and not. I mean, you could do it on TV, but it, but it's just it's just perfect for this kind of thing because they're both there in booming stereo. You think the circus is uh, such a Doctor Who thing, but they haven't really. Not something that's been used very often in Doctor Who, is it? I mean, I guess there's budgetary restraints in the TV show. We've just got Terror of the Autons, haven't we? But And the greatest show in the galaxy. And the greatest show in the galaxy, of course. How could I forget? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is because it's this sort of travelling thing that will just appear in a town and, and uh, you know, be sort of, sort of full of unusual stuff. It is it is ripe for Doctor Who, isn't it? And it's, mm. uh, it, it's great here that... Uh, that I think because we hear about it first, don't we, from the townsfolk, from the from the shopkeeper and his daughter, uh, when the doctor goes to buy some uh, some jelly babies or whatever, and then he, he learns about the circus, and uh, it's uh, yeah. So you get again, you get that sort of build up, and then uh, until we until we see it. Yeah, and there's a nice inversion of the the, the thing where we we the suspicious locals are telling him how much they hate these outsiders and that they're scary and terrible, and so of course this is Doctor Who. The lesson we expect to learn is that the outsiders are actually lovely and the villagers are horrible for being prejudiced against them. But then they will start murdering all the villagers. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> well, you know something like that's going to happen. Uh, it's uh, which is actually a twist <laughs> for once. Yeah, and um murdered in lots of wonderfully macabre ways as well as befits the whole story so i love the tightrope walker who it turns out has worn the ballet shoes yeah. which are in the previous story so he's sort of piecing together the the history of of what what's happened and where he's gone so everything is sort of working a bit backwards um which is um really really good and sort of the image of the the woman riding the horse who's never ridden a horse before and she could do it perfectly the sister isn't it of one of the characters right, yeah. and and she, but she can't stop she can't stop herself because the hornets are manipulating everything so yeah it's just again it's a really good it's it's all those sort of macabre children's stories that he's sort of using as a basis and fairy stories and all these wonderful archetypal settings but doing something with a slight twist to it all 
which yeah, it just works works really really well. Yeah, each story gets a little bit darker, doesn't it? And and like you say, more macabre and yeah, and 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 the, the really clever. I'm about to do a pun. The really clever tightrope that this one walks is <laughs> that it um uh it does that almost well it is sort of comically gruesome deaths like almost Charlie Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, but then it it comes straight back to how horrifying it is for the for the family members and there's a bit about someone being left with the broken remains of the character that he'd been looking for in his arms, uh, and it's really disturbing. You know, it's 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 you really feel the emotion of it, and it, that's that's such a difficult thing to land because it could just come across. You know, the, it made me it reminded me a bit of the League of Gentlemen's circus episode with Papa Lazarou. Mm-hmm. Um, imprisoning the wives of Royston Vasey inside a giant elephant as, as he would be wont to. And, um, but in that, you don't really feel sympathy for those characters because it, it's, a, it's, a com- it's an all-out comedy despite being a really dark and horrific one. But in this, it, it, it's not, it doesn't go that far and it, and, and it still holds you with the, the real sadness of, of things that happen to people, which is a really clever touch. Yeah, because yeah, it's the, the doctor who's the like the village doctor who is the brother of the, the girl who ran away with the circus and has come back. Um, he ends up with a body and then it's, it's even more gruesome that we learn that he's the one that preserved her feet um, to, for them to be in the museum of curiosities, you know, hundred years down the line um, that, you know, obviously he was left very damaged by it as well. And yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a grim old story. Yeah. Yeah. In, in every sense. Yeah. So then we there's another time jump and we go back even a lot further to Northumbria, your your neck of the woods, not your uh, mark, but not not exactly on your doorstep, but just about. Yeah, very close. Yeah, as the doctor says, uh, a wild and unsettled place, even in your time, Mike. We still praise that. But Paul Mars is from the northeast, I think. So I guess he can, yeah, he's uh, from Newton Ailiff, isn't he? So yeah, he, yeah. he'd know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, so that, this, that was a lovely line. This one is ultra atmospheric with the crunching through the snow and the wolves and the nuns and it being feeling really wild and sort of out there and nature being against them as well as the hornets, but mm. also features perhaps my favourite moment of the whole thing and the twist that I'd completely forgotten when the Doctor goes to meet the abbess who um, has been rescued and is is recuperating and his eyes are taking a moment to adjust to the darkness in the room and then you just hear Tom's very surprised voice saying, <laughs> she was a pig! wow okay no i'd completely forgotten that and so it made me laugh all over again which is just okay fine we're just going with this this just feels completely in keeping and feels absolutely (laughs) right for these stories yeah yeah once once you're in this universe it's amazing what you'll just you'll start rolling with and 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 the up the ante gets up as we go through it i guess uh as we're um we're taking it all in our um in our stride because we? we're used to it and it's it's only rule of bloody lenska playing a, spoilers a swarm of hornets pretending to be a pig pretending to be a mother superior <laughs> so ruler how well, did you, approach did you get part? for that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. well i mean she's got she's got precedence here because she had played an evil nun in robin of sherwood 
very Absolutely. memorably as well. So um, there is, yeah, she's she knows what she's doing, but she's so good and so creepy and eerie. Mm-hmm. And then, and then in the final story, when uh, again, not to probably spoil the absolute denouement, she's got that almost sort of childish greed as well that she she goes mm-hmm. from being quite regal to that that really wheedling begging. Uh, it's yeah, it's 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 a really really good performance. Uh, you can uh, they they got let's like, say Stephen Thorne, uh, and it, it's um, Noggins is Daniel Hill is it from Sharda? Yes, yeah. yeah. We got some some great people in, and obviously people that, that Tom Baker would have worked with before as well. And it, reminding me there, what I like is you all the stuff that uh, a lot of the stuff that the Doctor's got dotted around the house that Mike spots in that first story you then start to look out for. So like the Bally slippers, um, I think appear when uh, Mike tries to swat a bat or something with them. And then uh, there's, there's the garden gnome and that he's got a dog called captain. Uh, so, and all these things then take on new significance as we, as we go through the stories and, and we encounter the different, uh, the, the different people or animals or objects, which, which end up in his house as part of the story. So this one introduces uh, Captain as well, the, uh, the wolfhound that, uh, that the doctor's uh, got in his house. And a brilliant and wonderful chase through the TARDIS corridors, which yeah. is really sort of magically done. And especially with the doctor being so woozy and not knowing where he is and having have had the wolf bites and, and things like that, it then takes mm. on a really almost surreal sort of nature of him racing around his TARDIS, but not knowing where he's going and, and things like that. Yeah. It's really that those scenes were really, really good and describe it. As always, I love it when they're describing the really weird rooms that you encounter in the TARDIS that we never see on TV. And yeah, that's all wonderful. And coming from Paul Mars and Tom Baker at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I think in his big interview in 1991 in Doctor Who magazine, Tom Baker spoke about um, saying that they were never adventurous enough on TV with the TARDIS and there should be whole rooms that are like a cathedral or a great big field that you're walking through and, and things like that. And um, sort of he's always the closest you got was the boot cupboard joke with a bit of CSO. Yeah. So, so to, and of course, audio is the best place to do that because you can conjure up these wonderful images in your head. And yeah, it's absolutely perfect. Because this is not long after the invasion of the time. This is uh, because he talks about his recent adventures, and they are the adventures that he's had with Leela. Um, so, so this wouldn't be that long after he's had a, another dash through the TARDIS. <laughs> but this is this is like you say it's more surreal and fantastical and, and exciting, isn't it? Yeah, and I, and I love the way that this, this is this, this is such a um, diverse one, stinging the tail part four, because it. Um, it starts at an abbey in 1039, but then we're off to Venice in, in 1768. And, and there's, um, and it's link, linking back to the previous, but it's answering questions that were asked a couple of stories earlier. It all, it all locks together in your brain uh, in a way that, you know, some, some narratives, if they leap about just because they're sort of showing off that they can, don't, don't land that for me. But this one really does. Cause, cause yeah, you 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 the, the, the thread feels really feels coherent and like it's got a natural flow from one place to the next. Yeah. It's beautifully plotted. 
And again, this sort of ties in with the feeling that Mark had where we don't know whether the Doctor is possessed by the Hornets at this point because he's not acting like he normally does. He doesn't know whether he led them to the control room for sort of because he was unwell or because he was controlled. And so you've still got that little bit of mystery and that's going to carry on into the last story. Is he going to be revealed to be holding the Queen in his head or, or whatever? But yeah, it's... Again, it's just sort of playing with that that idea all the way through. Yeah, because he learned in the previous story the significance of Venice at that time. That's right. Yeah. So it, it's yeah, the first time I listened to it, I remember thinking that's a bit odd that he, he doesn't but like you say, he's high, he's cut sort of slightly poisoned, isn't he, by the uh by the attack and then so he's got that wooziness, he doesn't quite know where he is, he's ended back in the in the control room. So 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 he completely sells it, doesn't it? That he doesn't know whether he's making things better or making things worse. And uh, and, and that's a difficult thing to land and it and it absolutely does. You you know you, you can see him not knowing whether he's doing the right thing or not. Yeah, and just that Tom Baker really sells that moment where he realizes that he's set in motion the story of Antonio and that it's his fault that this has happened and he's cost that man his life. Mm. And he plays that really, really well, I think. I really liked that. Mm. Yeah, because the other thing, I think I remember this from the first time I was thinking, well, why has he done that when he knew what was going to happen? But that was probably uh, listening to the to the CDs a month apart. And then the other thing I wasn't quite sure about was that he seems to realise in this story the significance of alcohol uh because there's something earlier on about mrs wibsey not drinking and noggins not drinking about whether that was a sign of people being possessed but then you sort of learn that it's actually the alcohol in somebody's system that repels the hornets and prevents them from uh, from possession he seems to learn that here but then forget about it by the end of the story but well, there is a lot going on isn't there yes and you do get the great line of Tom Baker saying, "Well, of course, I will. I, I did want a snifter." Yeah. <laughs> you think maybe there's real life coming into that slightly there yeah. as well. You never know. So before we move on to the final one, uh, I've just done a little. I just did that. I had a. I had an amazing idea two minutes before we started recording, which was that I don't know how much I actually know about hornets. Uh, and I don't know if you guys know how much you know about Hornets either. So I jumped onto Google and thought, I'll just Google some questions and we could have a little Hornet quiz. Uh, now, I would say hands-on buzzers because that would be funny, but we don't have buzzers, so we're not doing that. Um, I've got two questions each for you guys. Uh, and all you have to tell me is whether the answer is, if it's a Hornet or not, is got to be your answer <laughs> to each question. Uh, so I'll start with you, Mark. If you were peckish and in Japan, could you order a crunchy fried hornet or not? Or is that just the sort of thing people would make up about Japanese food? I'm going to say yes. That's not the answer I'm looking for. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, that's neither of the answers that I'm looking for. Oh, sorry. It properly. The... <laughs> <laughs> hornet or not? If Hornet. Hornet, you are correct. You have one point. You can yes. indeed order a crunch, lovely crunchy fried Hornet uh, in Japan. Um, more of a rural thing, apparently. But still. Uh, okay, sorry. Uh, if you were stung by a bee and a Hornet at the same time in different places, 
would the hornet be the most painful of the two or not? Ooh, that's a very good question. I'm going to say hornot. Interesting. Well, you've clearly never had a day as bad as our hypothetical person who's been somewhere than both, because apparently hornet stings are really bad and are much worse than bee stings. Oh. Yeah. So uh, there you go. You've not got a point, but you've learned a helpful fact. <laughs> Mark, is <laughs> talking of violence and attacks, can bees kill hornets or not? Or not? You'd think not, but 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 because a hornet is more poisonous than a bee, but bees can crowd around. Hornets have lower body temperatures. Bees can crowd around them, make them too hot, and they die of of heat uh, exposure. So, so no, you don't get a point there, I'm afraid, because uh, bees can kill hornets. That was I was entirely imagining sting, stinging. Yeah, tr- I, I, trick, thought, yeah. I was tricking hornets you there. would have some kind of protection from when they were all crowded together um, that they wouldn't accidentally sting each other. So I was imagining some kind of anti-sting armour. But yeah, I wasn't thinking... <laughs> yeah, and you're right. They, it's not, they can't sting them to death, but they can overheat them by, by surrounding them. Yeah. But the, the, okay, these facts... Think outside the hive, Mark. It's not good enough. <laughs> these facts mostly come from a website called mrwasp.co.uk who claims to be a wasp, exter- wasp exterminator. But with a name like that, I severely question whose side he's really on, Mr. Wasp. <laughs> uh, so this, this could all be lies. Uh, okay, so uh, at the moment, Mark leads by one point, but Simon, you've got a chance to draw even. The final question. Back to Japan. Hornet larvae produce a sticky, sweet substance known as Vespa amino acid mixtures. Uh, It attracts workers and gives them energy. It's called V-A-A-M for short. It's also used in a popular Japanese energy drink. Hornet or Hornot? Hornot. Believe it or not. It is true. Hornet larvae juice. (laughs) Hornet larvae juice is included in a popular Japanese energy drink. Damn it! Apparently, so uh, with with a with a with a binary one point mark, you are our hornet champion. (laughs) (laughs) I'm buzzing. (laughs) So this will have to buy you the vinyl version of this set now. Damn it. <laughs> your, your prize is a free URL to buy this vinyl album. <laughs> so just the URL is free, to be clear. Uh, so, sorry about that. Um, so, moving on. The Hive of Horror, the climax. We suddenly jump into present time, don't we? Because this one is drama, not narrated. Uh, and Wibsy and Yates come to the fore as, uh, as, as they both really get into the thick of it together. Yes, because we've just had the brilliant cliffhanger at the end of The Sting in the Tail, where Mrs. Wibsey is banging on the door saying, it's time you came out of that cellar. It's <laughs> There's nothing bad up here at all. Yeah. And then they're sort of ready, and they know, and then open the door, and all the animals are swarming at them. It's <laughs> wonderful. And again, it's a perfect bit of sound design, because you can hear all the different screeches, and so you know what's going on. And then it cuts to the start of the Hive of Horror and said, well, of course, we, we saw all those off, didn't we, Doctor? <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of all left to your imagination to piece that, that, those 20 minutes or whatever where they're just burning them or whatever, uh, doing whatever. But, of course, 
the zebra still still remains. Yes, the 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 the, the biggest, I suppose, basically, isn't it? Of, of, of the mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, and, and this is, and yeah, we mentioned it, this is the bit where Mike's breakdown, as he calls it, he mentions having had a breakdown, doesn't he? Um, I suppose if this did have the Brigadier in it, they'd maybe be talking about the Mordrin Undead situation. Ooh, yeah. but, it, um, but in a way, it, it does work better with, with Mike. I mean, he's it, got a track record with being uh, not insects. I was kind of, oh, I nearly called spiders an insect then. We'd get letters. But creepy crawlies, there we go. Uh, <laughs> Maggots are insects. Flies are insects. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, he, he can't be trusted, can he? Basically, mm, so which, uh, which is great. <laughs> yeah. it, it really it feeds into it because this this whole story is is main. Well, the three of them plus the queen, um, and it's all set in the cottage's living room <laughs> inside a stuffed zebra, which is which is brilliant. Um, and and the thing while you're on the sound design, there's a lovely bit where the the doctor is sort of communing with the queen and all his dialogue sort of fades away at the end. Um, and it sort of seems to sort of suggest that he's losing because her voice is very dominant and strong. And every time he speaks, it's just like it's, it doesn't just naturally end. It, it feels like it's, it's sort of faded down, like he's being overridden. And I thought that was a really nice subtle piece of, uh, of sound design as well. Yeah, and I hope that they've got a, the sound designers must have had like a list. Okay, we've got two badgers, three otters, four squirrels, and a zebra in this one. It's like, oh, that third, that third gecko isn't coming through. You turn it up a bit because they've they you get in your mind, in your ears, in your I was going to say in your mind's eye, but it's not your mind's eye. It's, it's just your, in your ears. You're, you're you're processing all this, and it's a real three D um, situation that you're in the midst of. The throne room full of sputum and venom and pulp. Is enough. Oh, Tom Baker relishes that line, doesn't yeah. he? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Could also be a um, John Peel meme. <laughs> and now here's the new album, The Throne Room, from Sputum, Venom, and Pulp. Supergroup. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you can hear them sort of walking on paper and, and things like that, and the descriptions of the walls of the brain being like paper mache and, mm. and highly flammable and, and things like that. It's all really evocative, again, yeah, and you get and we get some really great character stuff with Mike and Wibsy, both. Be, you know, which one of them is being controlled? Uh, uh, has the Doctor got it wrong? And and we've seen that plenty of times, but it, 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 but it's really well played out here, and and just just feels really fresh, um, despite the formaldehyde. I love the way Tom Baker's saying the word formaldehyde is just another perfect match. Yeah, because um. Our natural instinct, I think, is to b- trust Mike, isn't it? So we trust him when he says, oh, it's Mrs. Wibsey and he's really suspicious of her and wants her tied up with his tie and hands in front of him where he can see them. And then you start to get these hints that he's not quite himself. And then that wonderful conversation between the Queen of the Hornets and and Mike, where she's tempting him and she's she's the perfect temptress and saying, oh, you could have his body, you could be young again, which is absolute, uh, what it's all really been leading up to because hmm. we've got Mike who's a lot older with a doctor who's younger, um, younger than, than, he, than the doctor that he knew. And so hmm. he's renewed himself. And then you get that sort of bitterness, a, a slightly perhaps wasted life, that he hasn't done what he wanted to, hasn't achieved what he wanted. And 
it's a lovely, lovely bit of writing and beautifully played by Rula Lenska. And Richard Franklin is absolutely superb there. He really is. And you sent, you really got a sense of his, the character's selfishness as well. And that, why shouldn't I have this? Why should he have this? It's really, really good. It's brilliant, I think. It's such a unique take to try and tempt one of the Doctor's allies by being the Doctor as well. You you could become this uh, super intelligent, you know, renewing Time Lord. But also the way she, she plants doubt when she says, you know, how, how do you know he's all these things that he says? You know, he, he tells you he goes off into time and space. Where's the evidence? Like, you've just... Because he never got a go, did he, poor old Mike? No, no, yeah, he never yeah. got into TARDIS at all. Yeah, they could have all yeah, just been exactly. gaslighting him and going down the pub and <laughs> instead of... Yeah, yeah. that's it. And, you, 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 and she says to him, you know, you've just found him in this cottage in the countryside. Like, <laughs> he's, he's, you know, you don't know where the TARDIS is or anything. Um, and you think from Mike's point of view, yeah, like, why why, why would he believe that necessarily, you know? And then if he's, especially if he's sort of questioning, questioning his own faculties and beliefs at the time, it's, it's a really well put together argument um, to the extent that you could believe that Mike has fallen for it, that he has come under her influence. It's all beautifully done just, just with those four characters mm. in one location almost. It's, um, you know, for the finale, it's not this big epic uh, you know, jetting all over the world type thing, like like some series finales would mm. be. It's it's small and characterful, but but very tense and, and brilliantly acted and written, basically. Yeah, it's these four characters, and it's it's very talky. It's four characters talking dramatically and and changing their minds and and revealing things and and back some back and forths, um, which isn't yeah exactly what you say. It's not a run around. There's no um, there's no big shootout. It's it's. Uh, it's a it's a power play of words, which is very fitting. Yeah, just beautiful, beautiful character work all the way through. And again, I think this is where having Richard Franklin as Mike Yates works better than Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier would have done, because the Brigadier does know the Doctor travels through time. He does know about his future. He knows all these things that that Mike doesn't, and so you haven't got that to play with so this actually becomes the sort of change of character from the original idea then becomes a strength in the storytelling yeah and i hope people aren't put off by the fact that it's not the brigadier because you can see you know people because there's there's a bit of an obsession with team ups and everything you know and then it's the, the third doctor and the 12th doctor teaming up with someone from the gunfighters in a new comic or whatever and, and people get a kick out of out of all that but but the, the and yes the fourth doctor and the brigadier were great together and it would be lovely would have been wonderful to have more stuff with them but this is not this this just really works for mike yates specifically doesn't it yeah it's like you're saying yeah and it's not about nostalgia and hearing two characters who know each other really well we get mm. a different oh. dynamic between them because they don't we don't know what the fourth doctor and Mike Yates would have been like because we've never seen that. We've never, no one's even contemplated that before this. It's not a pairing you would, would naturally think of. You'd go for something bigger, the fourth doctor and Joe Grant. You could, you could sort of understand something like that. But Mike isn't someone that you would. No, he's very straight way to bring back. <laughs> he's perhaps ironically, he's very straight laced. And uh, the um, 
com- contrasting with even with Harry, who's much more the, the good good laugh and jolly good sport, and the Doctor can take the, the Mickey out of him all the time. Uh, but um, couldn't quite that one. You know, you couldn't you couldn't have dropped Mike Yates into season twelve instead of Harry. That the chemistry just would no. would not have worked at all. So here, that chemistry has to be created. And yeah, like you said, it's it's Mike's sort of resentment about certain things combined with the fourth doctor's refusal to be nostalgic is, is a really good really good pairing for things to spin yeah, out and of. you create something new and we we don't hear tom with a single male companion very often and certainly not a mature male companion ever really yeah. so it it creates a completely new unexpected dynamic yeah, the mature male companion we've not had until the thirteenth Doctor era, have we? It's uh, it's it's like a new new facet that we've 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 just had. Yeah, and it's become so, one. It's yeah, become one of those things like, why didn't they do? How did it take them this this long to, for it to occur to them to do this? Because yeah, yeah. So this is quite forward looking in that way, isn't it? By um, you know, by having that. So I never thought of it like that. Mike Yates was the will fall along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a bit of that. Yeah, there's something to by that. a year to to his. <laughs> So it all ends with snowfall and and every, all all is well in the village and there's a, a a good it doesn't have a cliffhanger ending though does it it's not a it it has a it ends and yeah but then there's more more to follow yeah yeah I mean I I suppose at the time they didn't know that there would be that it would be successful that Tom would want to come back for another one mm. so they're not hedging their bets by putting a cliffhanger in it just ends beautifully at christmas yeah and that, that's really nice i think uh, when reading the um the annual years which is paul mar's book about the obviously the doctor who annuals uh you know he talks about like the canine and company annual being like a, a christmas tradition for him like watching canine and company going to bed reading a story from that mm. Uh, you know, it's nice that, you know, maybe he had the idea that people would put this on at Christmas and, and listen to it. Um, then there's an oblique reference to canine as well at the end of the story. Uh, it's almost a shame he doesn't arrive in the TARDIS and sing We Wish You a Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I we're meant to think the Doctor's between canines at this point, aren't we, I think? Yes, yeah, maybe he hasn't quite finished building the one that was in the crate <laughs> at the end of the invasion of time. He's, and he's, he's got himself a real dog now, so doesn't yeah. need him. <laughs> but yeah, it, it just it does feel like sort of the perfect story, like a ghost story for Christmas. That whole tapping into that whole between Christmas and New Year kind of feeling, where you want something that's spooky but comforting and quite long to fill the many hours that you've got <laughs> to do but goes all over the place and tells a big story but it was all wrapped up in snowy conditions and mrs wibsey complaining about going having to go to the shops yeah. on christmas eve <laughs> yeah. for, to get the stuff for christmas dinner it all it it really does feel sort of like dark december days are the perfect time to be listening to this and yeah just as the sun set and you're settled in, it's nice and warm, you've got a nice glass of wine or whatever, and yeah, off you go. Tom's fruity tones are exactly per- right for that time of year. Yeah, it, it made me think I um, I might I might sort of make a bit of a tradition of listening to this at Christmas because it's, uh, it's a, a lovely thing to listen to. Yeah. 
I'm, and I'm and I'm thinking about it follows. It goes. There's two. I think there's a, there's another sequel to this. Uh, that's not directly a sequel, but um, the Baker's End audios. Did you ever listen to those? They are oh, com- I never heard those. They are completely no. mad. Uh, it's um, it is Paul Mars writing it again, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Um, uh, and it's uh, uh, they came out in 2016. The first, uh, and there there is a series of about six, I think. Um, and it's it's Nest Cottage in all but name. And it begins with um, Katie Manning traveling to to Nest Cottage to uh, to uh, because it's because it's Tom Baker's funeral. Tom Baker has died. It's his funeral. Uh, all his friends gather. It's not called Nest Cottage anymore. It's called something else. But it's just crazy. And Miss and she's uh, Suzanne Jameson's there as Mrs. Frimby, uh, but it's just Mrs. Wibsey. And um, it, it's, it's sort of with, with Paul Mars, he, he jumps into parallel universes sometimes, doesn't he? So I think that's what what this is meant to be. Um, and and in the, while they're at Tom Baker's funeral. Um, a six-foot cat appears, which has the voice of Tom Baker, and is basically Tom Baker in a suit, dressed in a cat costume. Like within the story, he's in. I'm, I'm not selling this well, but within the story, he's Tom Baker in a cat costume, pretending to be a cat, but everyone kind of believes that he really is a cat. And then they have adventures with ghosts and and whatnot. It's it's it is this made a hundred times madder. And uh, and it's not really Doctor Who, but it's it's Tom Baker going even more Tom Bakerish, uh, and it, it's really worth a listen because it's, it's it's also it's funny. It's it's a comedy fundamentally. It's a comedy, uh, and uh, yeah, The King of Cats is the first one, um, but that's from Bafflegab, and I think you can get those really cheap now on CD. I don't know if they're downloadable yet, but they're only a fiver or something. Uh, and they're a, re- a really good laugh and com- just completely mad. And and Tom Baker and Katie Manning star as Tom Baker and Katie Manning. Uh, it's just, it's mad. <laughs> that sounds perfect. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, I need to, um, I just have a look. They are on Audible as well. So, uh, right. Okay. Well, so, listen, uh, if, 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 so basically, if you think this, if you think this is crazy, uh, take, go down Baker's End and that's the version of it that's even more, <laughs> even more removed from our reality. <laughs> I don't know if there's any limited editions of that coming out or if it was too... Uh, well, time will tell. Maybe everything's going to come out on vinyl eventually. I wonder if they're going to press on. It'd be great if they did. Well, it might bankrupt some people. But if now they've done one, there must be the temptation. They must be thinking about doing all the full trilogy on vinyl. Yeah, Serpent's Nest and um, Serpent Crest. Oh, I can't remember. Demon Quest. Demon Quest. Demon Quest and Serpent's Crest. Nest. Yes. Something like that. <laughs> Is it, do they all rhyme? I hadn't ever noticed yes. that before. <laughs> Hornet's Nest, oh, Demon Quest, Crest, and Crest. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, you're right, Simon. Uh, and they get madder and madder as they go along as well. And it leaves behind the cottage. Well, the cottage is still around, but we're off into intergalactic adventures, aren't we, in the, in the subsequent ones? Yeah, I need to revisit those now that I've listened to this. Uh, yeah, it's given me uh, definitely an appetite for that. Yeah, I was thinking exactly the same. Yeah, and they crop up on BBC Radio from time to time for extra. Um, listen out for them because they're, they're, they're on the books over there, and every couple of years or so, they'll they'll give them another outing. Yeah, so it's been a great opportunity to revisit them for the vinyl. But obviously, if if you're um, not one of the few people that's getting the vinyl, then um, yeah, definitely. If you've never heard them, definitely seek them out um and yeah probably if you haven't listened to them like us for a few years then uh, revisit them as well because uh, 
they uh, they are fantastic and, and really hold up. I think um, looking actually, the, it's a limited edition of only twelve hundred for these vinyl sets. So uh, it says um, six hundred available in the UK, three hundred in America, fifty in Australia, and then two hundred and fifty in the rest of the world. So they yeah. uh, potentially um, going to be quite hard to uh, to come by. Yeah, it's uh, you know, we're not going to be finding them in B and M, are we? <laughs> but, but then there's a plus that you could just click on a flipping link and order them, which at least yes. <laughs> you, can, yeah. is, you don't have to go to B and M. No, or, or, or buy them on eBay. <laughs> but if you just pop it, B and M is such an you know, you pop, just popping into B and M to get some bleach and Doctor Who figurines and plant pots it's just, and crisps. I don't know. It's, it's the weirdest combination of things there. At time of recording, they are still available on Amazon. So, uh, so the um, the few hundred UK ones uh, haven't sold out. But it's already out. It's out there. Brilliant. Yes. So, I think have we covered that in full? I think we've given it a good buzzing over. Is that even? Yeah. Really. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's coming? What's coming up later, Mark? On your on the uh, on the Great Almighty Trap One spreadsheet. Uh, well, we're going to look at uh, Mind of the Hodiac, which was the Russell T. Davies' first ever Doctor Who script. Um, so it'll be interesting to to listen to that in advance of RTD2. RTD 0.1. Yeah. Um, and there's the Dalek movies, various uh, re-releases, which uh, I'm looking forward to, to hearing you guys talk about. And uh, and it's Pete's origin story, I understand. Yeah, there's, I, it's the first Doctor Who I ever saw. I've calculated it, and I've, I've found the, um, uh, the, 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 the in the BBC genome thing, you know, you can see old TV listings, and it was definitely shown a little while before Destiny of the Daleks. So then when I saw Destiny of the Daleks, I thought I was watching a remake of an old movie, uh, and I, I, th- I thought it was just, just, that it was just a remake of uh, the original Dalek movie when I was about five i suppose yeah I, to be fair it is terry nation and <laughs> yeah, that is entirely even, possible <laughs> even at that age i was like this is terry nation isn't it <laughs> and that inspired me to write my first ever doctor who fiction um which i did at primary school i got it was called doctor talk talk russell t davis everyone else can do it called uh, doctor who and the time potion uh, I'll have to try and dig that out. I basically, I, I think I just wrote all the chapter titles and, and then did chapter one and got bored and never did the, never finished it. So, hey, Terry Nation influence again. <laughs> um, <laughs> episode this week, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll dig that out uh, and see if that's still the test. Well, there's lots to look forward to in that one. <laughs> yes, because we're going and to the BFI, aren't we, Simon? We are, Pete. Hey. Yes, thank you very much. Managed, I managed to bag us a couple very of Very exciting. But, but oh, there's sorry. rumors, maybe by the time this podcast goes out, I don't, I've seen definite hints from the BFI that it's not just going to be there, is it? It's going to be on, on screen uh, elsewhere in the country too. Yes. Um, so that's worth Might even make it as far as Mark. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it is, it is, it's re-released at cinemas. So, yeah, hopefully the, uh, the, the view up here will get it. Brilliant. Uh, but, um, so your story there, Pete, reminded me when I was, at, I think it was like second year of senior school. Yeah. And it was a short story competition, and uh, and I came second, and the prize was uh, book tokens. But they actually took us to a, a book warehouse. Um, this is in Workington, where I lived at the time, and I found the the hardbacks of those Doctor Who episode guides. You know the ones the uh, the, the, the 
they were Reese and the Davidson era, so they've just got the first five. Oh, yeah, um, the program guy. Uh, yeah, five doctors on them. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're the program guy. So, yeah, and I remember uh, taking them and my teacher saying, you know, are you sure you want those? Are you really going to be still interested in Doctor Who in a few years' time? <laughs> <laughs> Who was wrong? <laughs> <laughs> little did they know, and little could they have hoped. <laughs> Supposed to be broadening your mind, not giving you a list of production codes. But... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping I was going to pick some uh, classic literature. Or <laughs> yeah. uh, and we also got the the new target books as well in july so uh, i think the the, the plans will be will be covering those so lots to look forward to yeah it's not long now definitely cool okay well so well thanks for listening guys i hope you've enjoyed our walk down memory lane and uh, and yeah give them a listen uh, if you haven't or give them a re-listen particularly i think if people who didn't like them when they first came out because they weren't what people were after back then now there's so much tom baker doing do, doing straight doctor who if you like you know doing doctor who as as we expect it was more as it always was to then go back to these more oddities they might find might be a bit more um uh i don't know people might find them a bit bit less out there or, or might just enjoy the fact that they're a bit out there a bit more i don't know definitely yeah so we'll say goodbye for now thanks for listening goodbye bye bye, bye. <laughs>